0: Earlier I introduced our guest preacher for this morning, Reverend Steve Unthank from Greenbelt, Maryland. As Steve comes, I encourage you all to pay attention to the Word of God as it's read and preached this morning. And a special welcome to those who are watching the live stream this morning or the recording later on. Uh, We do trust that you'll be in touch with the church and reach out to us if we can help you in any way. Steve. Well, good morning. If you have your Bible, please open up with me to Luke chapter 18, the gospel of Luke, Luke 18. While you're turning there, let me just begin by giving a, a, a heartfelt thanks for your hospitality, especially the hospitality of Pastor David and uh, wife Laurel and getting to know Dan and Heather. It's been a great past couple of the days, good food, meeting new friends. Uh, I bring greetings from Greenboat Baptist Church, and we've been praying for you and praying for this time. And uh, just this, this weekend has been an absolute thrill, and I'm very grateful. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly read the text here soon, but uh, I, I want to give a, a little correction. I do come as an expert Uh, But you're right, not an expert in prayer, uh, certainly an expert in uh, need, uh, an expert in failure. Uh, I have to admit, uh, when I was uh, asked and invited to come, I was both nervous and excited, uh, nervous because I know my own failings, uh, as I'm sure we all do in this area of prayer. But also excited because I, I, I'm sure you know, once you give your mind and your heart any kind of attention to prayer, uh, something begins to bubble up and, and, and you're excited, reinvigorated again to, to recommit yourself uh, to study prayer. Uh, so it's in that vein that uh, I was very excited to come and do this. Uh, thinking of prayer as something of a, a, a riverbed. We all know we've seen a a dry riverbed. Uh, How often do we feel like our prayer life is like that? And my hope and my desire this morning is to help you wherever you are in your prayer life to uh, clear away the brush, to repent of sin. And hopefully that dried up riverbed will feel more like a refreshing current of the Mohawk or Hudson River, uh, as I'm sure you know, in this area. Well, if you've got your Bibles open, please turn with me to, again, Luke 18. And I'm read here, Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. If we're going to know something of prayer, it won't be me. It will be the living and active word of God, which helps us. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city... And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is God's living and active word and let's go and pray and ask for his help as we seek to understand it and submit to it. Our gracious Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us and we pray, Lord, now that you would be pleased to take your word and and by your spirit apply it to the depths of our hearts. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between bone and marrow, soul and spirit, and Lord there Would you find out like a perfect master surgeon the deep darknesses of our hearts and shine the light of your word upon it so that we might indeed repent, but Father, that we might indeed turn and come boldly to Christ, clinging to him. Lord, we pray that he would be exalted this morning and that we would come humbly before his throne. We pray for the blessings that are found in him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've read the passage, and I think you see why this passage is so helpful when it comes to prayer. The Lord begins the parable by actually telling us the point of the parable, right there in verse 1. He couldn't be clearer. The intended effect was that his hearers ought always to pray and to not lose heart. Do you see that in verse 1? He wants to teach us how to persist in prayer, that we would hear this parable and walk away recommitted to always praying, to not giving up, to not losing heart in our prayer. Before we look at the actual parable, I want us to see something first of the context here, because I think that's really important in understanding what Jesus is doing. This parable comes right on the heels of Luke 17, where at the end of chapter 17, Jesus has just taught us about living as citizens in the kingdom of God while we still wait for the fullness of the kingdom of God to come. In other words, if we had time to look at chapter 17, we would see that chapter 17 verses 20 through 37 is all about life in these last days between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And as Christians who are now separated from the world and yet still living in the world, Jesus promises that we will undergo pressures from the world, assaults opposition from the world, or even give up our confession in Christ because we're too attracted by the world. Just as Lot's wife, as described at the end of chapter 17, just as she couldn't bear to leave the glitz and the glamour of Sodom, so too will many so-called Christians give up heavenly faithfulness for worldly fun. Do you ever feel that temptation? I know I do. Could can tell when the world is most appealing to me, when the things of this world offer up their joys, that I might find my delight and satisfaction in them more than I do in Christ. It's precisely when that happens that I'm most prone to stop praying. So I want you to see this passage isn't just a passage on helping you to pray continuously. It's, It's more than that. There's eschatological weight infused within this parable. Jesus is concerned with your praying because he's concerned that you not give up. Whether you give up because life in this fallen world is too hard, you give up because life in this fallen world is too enticing. With all of its little lusts and detractions, Jesus wants you to hear this parable and to come away absolutely committed to persistent prayer so that you make it to the end. Look at how the passage ends. The end of verse 8. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now that's, that's Jesus' own takeaway. That's his application of the parable. It's asked as a question, a motivating question, but there it is. Will there be faithful people still praying when I come back? For Jesus, I think the word faith in verse 8 is parallel to and a synonym of what he says back up in verse 1. That is, people ought always to be praying and not losing heart. So what does faith and faithfulness look like in a fallen world? It looks like God's people always praying. Praying and not losing heart. It's as if Jesus is saying, between my ascension and my return, my people will be assailed. They'll be assaulted and oftentimes even annihilated. And in the face of that, will I find people who are continuously praying? People who have not lost heart? A lot of people have prayed before. A number of folks have even had significant seasons of prayer. But here Jesus' motivation is something altogether different. To be continuous in prayer. To pray habitually without losing heart. That takes faith. The evidence of strong faith, verse 8, is a continual habit of prayer, verse 1. Especially in an unjust and ungodly world. So, that's the context. And it's in that context that we can now take a closer look at the actual parable. And what a simple and yet effective parable it is. Two main characters. Both of them fit these tropes that we all know so well. One's a man, the other's a woman. One is powerful, the other's weak. One is fastidiously avoiding justice while the other never gives up seeking justice. They contrast with each other so well, and, and yet in their differences and in their interaction with each other, we see Jesus' main point brought out so beautifully. So let's, let's look at these two characters briefly. The first character is this wicked judge. Jesus, in verse 6, calls him an unrighteous or a, an unjust judge. And it's this unrighteousness, this indifference to true justice that makes this judge so bad. In fact, we're told that he neither feared God nor respected man. In other words, he didn't love the Lord God and neither did he love his neighbor as himself. Of course, we we know those two are always closely connected. What we think about God always trickles down into what we think about our fellow man. And here's a judge who gave no respect to either. Judges have two principal motivations to show justice. The first is a very healthy fear of God. The, the knowledge that one day you're going to stand before the judgment seat of the Lord is a marvelous incentive for worldly judges to take their calling seriously. The second motivation is a deep respect and concern for humanity. Humanity. And the laws that help establish justice among our fellow men. And yet here here was a man who neither revered God nor had respect for those made in God's image. This is why he had no motivation to pursue true justice at all. And here's what's staggering. Look at verse 4. He knows this about himself. Here's a man with a seared conscience whose only motivation is to make judgments based on what benefits him. The the, the kind of judge who usually will only rule in someone's favor if there's a nice bribe involved. Something a poor widow could never afford. I think it's important that we see here that that four times we see the word justice referenced in this parable. Look there at verse 3. Verse 3, the widow comes to the judge because she's seeking justice. Verse 5, the judge relents and says, okay, I will give the woman justice. Look at verse 7, Jesus says, how much more will God deliver? Justice. And then in verse 8, we're told that God will speedily bring about justice. Jesus is hammering at this theme of justice, and I can't help but think that in light of what he just taught back in chapter 17 about living in these last days, one of his points here is that one of the hallmarks of our life in this fallen world, life before the return of Christ, will be a continued and persistent injustice. The unjust judge, this ruler who's in power, does he not represent all of the world's rulers and authorities who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ? Again, this seems to be intimated in Jesus' last question in verse 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The rhetorical nature of that question certainly hints at the possibility that injustice and unrighteousness will be so prevalent at the time of Christ's second coming that even folks who claim to be believers will be found in the end to never really have believed at all. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator on the Bible, says this much on Luke 18: quote, "The world will grow no better, no, not when it is drawing towards its period." Bad it is and bad it will be, and worst of all, just before Christ's coming, those last times perhaps being the most perilous. I've always found it striking that the only time the word hallelujah, we know the word hallelujah, we sing it in our praises to God, the only time that word is found in the New Testament is in Revelation, when those saints who have just been martyred for their faith, Are now in heaven singing hallelujah, hallelujah when they see Christ return to earth to vindicate them and bring final justice. That matches perfectly with the punchline of this whole passage, doesn't it? Verse 7 Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, verse 8, he will give justice to them speedily. There's a day coming. When Christ will return, and when he does, true justice will finally be established. God's people will be vindicated, and it'll happen quickly. But until that final day of judgment dawns, until Christ, who is the true just judge, returns, we all inevitably live in a persistently unjust world. This is exactly what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that, quote, In the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, and abusive. They'll be brutal, not loving good, treacherous, and reckless. He then says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. That's exactly the environment Jesus brings us into here in this parable. We don't know what the injustice is exactly. There's a fair bit of vagueness in what's going on. But nonetheless, there's conflict. And it's here where we meet our second character, the poor widow. There she is in verse 3. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Her situation seems desperate. You can't read verse 3 like, give me justice against my adversary. Read it like a hopeless widow at her wits end. A widow, she she would have been one of the most vulnerable members of her society, which is why under God's law, both widows and orphans were explicitly mentioned as needing to be cared for. Here we see that she is pursuing justice. She's requesting help from this judge. But why? Why? She's being attacked by an enemy. She probably has no one to take care of her. Who that enemy is, we don't know. Again, the details are vague. but, But as a widow, it seems she had no one to protect her. She had no one on her side. Her only recourse was to beseech this judge. I think Dale Ralph Davis is absolutely right when he says that Jesus parallels the widow's circumstances here with those of God's people at large. According to verse 7, God's elect also cry out and beseech God day and night, asking him for justice. In other words, if the wicked judge is a stand-in for an unrighteous and unjust world filled with wicked rulers and authorities, well, then the poor widow is a stand-in for God's elect. That's the setup. Which really helps us understand, I think, here the full weight of Jesus, what Jesus wants us to walk away with. So, how does the judge respond? Well, That's just it. He doesn't. Not at first. Verse 4, we see that for a while he refused. He ignored the woman, hoping she'd maybe just go away. Let's be a bit honest with ourselves here. If it were you in the widow's position... If you were the main character in the story, would you have given up? Would the story have ended? Maybe you wouldn't have, and and praise God if that's true. But but it's quite okay to use this passage as a mirror to our own lives, to, to your own heart, and say, what would I have done? Well, it's precisely here where we get to the heart of the parable. The widow did not give up. Look what the text says. But afterward, the judge said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, verse five, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The widow was relentless. Rather than giving up after the judge ignored her pleas, she decided she needed to keep making her presence known. In fact, the language used here is that she wore the judge down. So unremitting were her pleas that finally the judge said, Enough! You're tiring me out! She must have shown up at the court day after day. Did she stop him on his morning route to the office? Did she make her presence known at the market? Like an incessant gnat, the widow brought her request day after day after day after day. until finally the judge said, all right, I'll grant your request. Now here's, here's where we need to be super careful. This parable's lesson has often been greatly misunderstood because most people think it teaches that feverish importunity and unrelenting persistence in prayer is a virtue. Untold, numbers of sermons have wrongly used this text to teach that we must frantically beg God to answer our prayers. I'm not sure that's exactly the main point going on here. Jesus is clear in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't he? When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, says Jesus, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. At its heart, the parable of the unjust judge and the pestering widow, I think, is more a parable of contrast. The lesson here is that God is not like that judge. Our God is good, our God is gracious. And our God is entirely willing to grant the faithful requests of his children. Look again at verse 7 and 8. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Jesus is not teaching that there's anything meritorious in our vain repetition. He's teaching that our Father in heaven listens and he listens intently. He isn't teaching that we need to repeat ourselves because because only then will God turn his ear. He's teaching that God is just and that God is acutely attuned to the needs of those in need of help. He isn't teaching that we need to repeat our prayers because if we don't, then God might be unwilling to answer us. No, he's teaching us that God is through and through compassionate and more than ready, speedily to bring about justice. So let's not walk away this morning thinking that the purpose of the parable is to repeat, 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 repeat our prayers like magical mantras, which over time will wear God down. The parable is presenting to us a greater than argument. You you know the greater than argument? God is greater than the wicked judge. And unlike the judge, God does not need to be beaten down, as Jesus puts it in verse 5, because God is already willing to answer our prayers. So what do we make then of verse 1? If the point isn't that God's arm is finally twisted by our persistence in prayer, well then why did Jesus tell us that he gave us this parable to teach us that we ought always to pray and not lose heart? In other words, it sure seems... From verse 1, like Jesus wants us to keep on repeating our prayers. Let's be honest. In short, he does. He wants us to keep on keeping on in our prayers, but not because our prayers are what ultimately move God or change God to act. Underlying this passage is that glorious truth that our God is impassable. Do you know that glorious doctrine? The impassibility of God, that nothing outside of God moves him to act, but that he acts entirely according to his own good will and wisdom. We do not pray to God like the old prophets of Baal prayed to their own false idols. Remember them whipping their own backs, calling upon Baal day and night. Answer us, Baal, answer us. No. Our God has already determined the end of all history and every point and every prayer leading up to that end. Our prayers do not change God because our God is an unchangeable and immutable God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The wicked judge, he changed. He made his decision to help the widow. Why? Because she wore him down. But we can't say that about God. We don't wear God down. Psalm 115 verse 3 tells us our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. So again, we ask the question, why does Jesus say that we ought to pray always and not lose heart? Here's the answer. Because in these persistently unjust days, it is our persistent prayer which keeps us attuned and keeps us faithful to our just And holy God. The end of this passage explains the beginning. Will Jesus find believers upon his return? That's the question of verse 8. And we see the answer in verse 1 only if they always pray and not lose heart. Again, coming off the heels of chapter 17, where Jesus is warning us to not be like Lot's wife. More in love with this world than we are with God. Here, Jesus gives us the key. He gives us the means of grace, whereby we can have a laser-like focus on the goodness and justice of God, even in the midst of an unjust world. And listen, we need to see this connection. The, the, The injustices of this world and falling in love with this world quite often go hand in hand. I know that may seem strange at first, but but just just consider this whole new deconstruction movement. Uh, Have you heard of that? So-called Christians who have deconstructed, basically, they've walked away from the faith. And more, more often than not, they do so because they are both supremely attracted to the lusts of the world, while at the same time upset at God because of the injustices they see in the world. They say, if God were real, then certainly he would deal with all the injustice we see around us. And there's so much of it. And so using that as an excuse to doubt God, they now see a wide open door to start pursuing and engaging in all the sinful activities and lusts that beforehand they were, they were slow to engage in. They'll say things like, evangelical Christianity is so oppressive for peeping, keeping people from doing what they want they'll say all our emphasis on holiness a christian's emphasis on obedience to christ that is an injustice in itself perhaps you've heard friends or neighbors say that so for the person who's backsliding for the person who's deconstructing the injustices of this world and the lusts of this world work in tandem to lead them away from god What Jesus does here is he gives us a motivation to say, don't give up. You see injustices now. But justice will one day be delivered. And when it does come, it will come speedily. But in order to stay hopeful, in order to remain faithful until that day, you need, no, he he actually says in verse one, you ought to pray. Serious, persistent, habitual prayer is the lifeline that keeps Christians faithful until Christ comes back. I think this is why Jesus uses the title of elect here to describe those who are praying for justice. Do you see that in verse 7? You'd expect him to maybe use children, the adopted sons and daughters of the father. That would certainly have a kind of emotional punch in this parable, wouldn't it? How much more would the father bring about justice for his children? But he doesn't use those categories. He speaks here about God and his elect. These aren't cold theological categories, though. The biblical doctrine of election means that God God knew us before we ever came to know him. It means he loved us before we ever came to love him. More than that, it means that God has a plan for our salvation in which he has promised to save us and keep us all the way to the very end. This is the language of covenantal commitment. And even though the timing of when God brings about his final justice may be slow, according to our accounting, according to our perspective, it's perfect according to God's. And that's why we pray. What a help this is to us in prayer. On the basis of our election, we have a claim on God that the widow never had on the unjust judge. When we bring our helpless case before our great and perfect judge, we're coming to a God who not only knows us and cares about us and has already promised to save us, but also knows that we need his help to stay committed. And listen to this. Through the praying, he works faith. Through our praying, he works perseverance. And because of our election, God works through the prayers of his elect to give us more confidence, more strength to keep faithful to Christ. And To be sure, God hears our prayers. He delights to answer them, especially when our prayers are aligned with his revealed will. Praying for those things that God himself has called us to pray and seek after. You know the words from James, the brother of Jesus. He's not wrong when he, when, he, when he says in James 4, you do not have because you do not ask. And even when you do ask, when you do pray, you don't receive what you've asked for because you ask for wrong things to spend it on wrong passions. In other words, we should be asking God, persistently praying to God for things, but we should always be asking for those things which we know according to his word, he delights to answer. In this context here, the theme of justice is paramount. The Lord is just, or the Lord loves justice. He abhors injustice. Today and this this weekend is a sanctity of life weekend, sanctity of life Sunday. There are countless, I don't know, thousands uh, right now in, in my hometown of Washington D.C. marching, uh, marching through the Capitol. Um, to end abortion. I, I, I pray that we would never stop praying for the injustice of legalized abortion to end. This is a worthy end to spend ourselves in prayer for. And are we not encouraged from this parable to know that our prayers are heard and will be answered because our God is a just judge? So often I think we feel like this helpless widow here. And to be honest... Most of us are helpless. What can I do to turn the national tide on abortion? Right? Like, what can I do to turn the tide on large-scale, deep-seated injustices? I'm going to post another post on Facebook, and maybe that'll help. Maybe you can write a letter to your senator. Okay. One thing we can do and know with confidence that good will come from it, is to go to our God in heartfelt prayer and to keep praying and to ask him to do what we can't do. Oh, how much that magnifies and glorifies God. He can do it because he's God. Can I just encourage you? If you were here this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, can I encourage you to go to God and ask him, pray to him to bring you? faith in Christ? There's a worthy thing to be persistent in prayer about. The fact of the matter is that none of us are unstained by the injustices of this world. Every one of us have acted unjustly. We are
1: unrighteous,
0: and daily we do things, we say things, we think things that add to the chaos of this fallen and unjust world. And there's no trying to balance the scales here. You, you, you cannot outweigh your unrighteousness with acts of righteousness. That's, that's not how it works. Even your good actions are tainted with rebellion against God. Any good you do is just, well, it's just nice paint covering the ever deeper walls of your own grave as you continually dig yourself deeper through sin and unrighteousness. And we know this. There's not a day that goes by where we don't sin perhaps you'll allow me to just just turn the heat up a little bit more on that we all sin and the bible's clear sin cuts us off from god completely and think about that when it comes to the topic of prayer this was brought up last night at our dinner psalm 66:18 is a terrifying verse that gives light to this do you know that verse there the psalmist says if i had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. That's an alarming truth. That God refuses to listen even to prayer if while praying we are cherishing sin. Some secret little lust. Some hidden little sin. Some some temptation couched in the hiddenness of your heart. God sees it. He knows it, and he knows that you love that sin. The terrifying truth here is that that sin keeps you from God and keeps God from listening to your prayer. I want to press this on because there ought to be a sense of helplessness arising when we consider these truths. It's a scary place to realize that even God will refuse to listen. And it's it's not a refusal like the unjust judge here's the irony it's a refusal because he is an entirely just judge if someone or something else is a god to you over and above the one true living god then god is entirely just and right to refuse your request and so look once you're there once you get that alarming truth once you realize you are, in fact, utterly helpless, utterly helpless like this widow, utterly helpless to find any rescue and to find within yourself any righteousness at all to plead your case, where do you go? Well, that's a good place to be because it's at that moment where you can do the only thing a sinner has any recourse to do and cry out for Christ. Will God answer that cry? Will he answer the prayer of Christ, save me? Absolutely. And do you know why? Our Lord, while in his ministry here on earth, never stopped praying. Significantly, as he neared the cross, we find that our Lord persistently prayed. And yet, in that moment, his father did not answer him. In fact, Jesus prayed and prayed and prayed all night that the injustice of his imminent arrest and crucifixion might pass. But the father was silent. And while Jesus hung upon the cross, he cried out in prayer again, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, the father was silent. And it was in that silence, and Jesus knew this, It was in that silence, in the father's refusal to answer his sinless son. Oh, mystery that that is. That access to the father was now opened up for every one of us who cherish sin in our hearts. And so I beg of you, dear sinner, realize your helpless state. But know that in Christ, in the name of Jesus, your helplessness is not hopelessness. You can cry out to Christ, and in the name of Christ, God, who is a just judge, will now look on you and lend his ear to you as a loving father. You can pray in the name of Christ, resting in the death and resurrection of Christ, and you can go to God and ask him to vindicate you, to justify you, and he will. He turns no one away who comes to him, asking for salvation. As we end... Let's return to this theme of justice, which is so front and center in this parable. I think we'd certainly have to say that Jesus' death upon the cross was the worst injustice ever committed in human history. I can't think of a bigger crime than killing the Son of God. And yet God's silence to Jesus Christ in that moment was also God's ultimate answer to all injustice everywhere, wasn't it? The moment of Christ's death was the Lord's answer to all the cries of injustice throughout the world. For in his death, sin was atoned for. It was the beginning of the end of injustice. Think of it. The just Son of God was put to death on our behalf so that we might be finally justified before God. Sin was atoned for. And now he's alive. He's raised from the dead. And guess what? Consider this glorious truth. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And you know what he's doing? He's still praying. Hebrews tells us he's interceding on our behalf day and night while we await his return. Waiting still in the still fallen world. He prays for us. There's a day coming when the Prince of Peace will return. And in that day, all will be made right. Every injustice will be done away with. But until that day comes, oh, dear church, let's keep our faith in him and do so through continuous prayer. It's his means of grace to us to keep our hope and faith focused on Christ and his return. Don't lose heart. The end is certainly nearing. Come, Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us without help in this still fallen and unjust world. And though we confess we are prone to wander, we are prone to go astray and use the injustices of this world as an excuse to pursue the lusts of this world. Oh Lord, we thank you that by your spirit you have worked within us a new heart and that the evidence of that new heart is continued prayer, And so we pray that you would continually sustain us. Make us to be men and women who do not lose heart. And as we pray, oh, Father, attune our hearts, attune our eyes to the coming day when faith shall turn to sight and waiting shall turn to rejoicing. It's in that day we hope and long for. In Jesus' name, amen.